Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Zoe Grunewald and you're listening to the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, I'm very lucky to be joined by not one but two special guests. We've got writer and commentator Benedict Spence and chief executive of the Liberal Conservative think tank Ryan Shorthouse. Today, we'll be discussing the past, present and future of moderate conservatism and what the Conservative Party could look like at the next general election. Unless you guys have been living under a rock, it feels like the news at the minute has been overwhelmingly concerned with the right of the Conservative Party. So whether it's kind of immigration, the National Conservatives Conference, culture wars, immigration. I said immigration, but there's been a lot of immigration. We seem to be just hearing a lot from the voices on the right, but also a lot about what the right's talking about and what the right looks like. Ryan, I'd like to start with you. Is this just noise or are we actually seeing a genuine shift to the right being the most powerful part of British politics? Well, in a way, I think it's a good thing that the Conservative Party and the wider Conservative movement are having all these conferences. It shows like a lot of intellectual vitality and debate. Uh, And I don't really see much of that on the left, to be honest. What I would say is I think particularly since Brexit, there has been a focus on a particular type of voter, the sort of red wall voter, which is perceived to be a little bit older, a little bit more socially conservative, a little bit left on the economy, wants a bit more security. And I think both the Conservatives and Labour have focused on that uh, typical, what they see to be typical red wall voter. My own view is that the vote for Brexit and then the majority that came for the Tories in 2019 has been somewhat overinterpreted. I think people decided to vote to leave the European Union because they just didn't like it. This sort of idea that there was a sort of big backlash from people in left-behind areas who just felt so aggrieved by the establishment. What happened between 2015 and 2016? In 2015, the majority of people voted for the Tory party to continue their austerity programme. And then the next year, apparently, the sort of cries of, this is terrible, the establishment have let us down. I think that's been somewhat exaggerated. And then the vote for Boris, the sort of saviour of left-behind Britain, I think a large part of it was just to do with the radicalism of Jeremy Corbyn. So 
that's me going quite a long way around, basically saying I think the parties have focused a lot more on what they consider to be a kind of typical red wall voter, which is more socially conservative, a bit more economically left wing. I think some of that has been overinterpreted. And actually for the Tories in particular, I think a lot of those voters are not people who are left behind, but actually quite aspirational. There's lots of evidence that those red wall seats that went Tory had a lot more homeowners. And of course, they're probably now feeling a lot more pain because of interest rate rises. A lot of them were relying on cars, on finance and having houses with mortgages. And that's been quite heavily impacted. So I think that's playing into a lot of frustrations now with the Tory party. Yeah, because we've seen MPs like Lee Anderson, for example, who's the kind of red wall Rottweiler, so he's nicknamed. And there's this kind of idea that in some way he speaks for the red wall or represents the red wall. But I guess you're saying that's a bit of an overinterpretation of just a huge number of people in the north of England almost, because obviously there's varying kind of political allegiances across the country. Benedict, do you think, do you agree? Do you think it's a kind of overinterpretation of what that kind of group wants to see from politics? To a degree. I think the party, I think the right is going through something of a crisis. It's fighting a war with itself that many people thought Brexit would solve and it didn't. It just reopened divides that weren't actually at the top of the agenda. And I think a lot of that is down actually to the competence of politicians and of government. One of the things that I think is very interesting from the National Conservative Conference, the much lambasted National Conservative Conference, was the sort of the howls of indignation from many conservatives. You've had 13 years to do all of this. Why haven't you done anything? And it's actually very difficult to take anything away from that other than that it is the truth. If you wanted to radically change the way that the country was going, if you wanted to fix many of the issues that are currently coming home to roost, they could have done so. These were not secrets. They were simply things that they didn't think were opportune were politically savvy because it was all about interpreting what different demographics want. Ultimately, what it comes down to is people want competence. And I think one of the things that we missed from the vote against, the vote for Brexit, rather, it was in part because of immigration. We can't really move away from that. I know lots of people want to say that it isn't, but it was. But that in itself was because people perceived their government as not being competent. Actually, it was a vote championed by the Tories, but it was very much a vote against the Tories because it was against the establishment. You know, no Tories more pro-Europe that no, no party is more pro-Europe than the Tories have been historically, as well as being the one that sort of leads to the charge against it. That is what it was. And what we have revealed, take back control, was about getting a government that actually had a sense of a grip of things, the direction that we're going in terms of economics, in terms of energy policy, in terms of education. These were the great unspoken things, but I think they were all simmering there because we go back to Cameron and discussions about broken Britain and hugger hoodie and all that, the sort of the fraying of the social contract was already there for everybody to see. And there was this idea that Brexit would solve all of this. Well, if you have a party that doesn't actually have a clear vision beyond business as usual after you leave the European Union, well, how can you possibly hope to solve any of that? And it's done this very this very dramatic thing in leaving the European Union and then gone, oh, what do we do now? Mm. I thought everything would have been solved by now. So I think a lot of what this is, the multitude of different factions and different people who have different ideas are all coming together and realising we don't have that much in common. It's very difficult to look at a party with, say, somebody like Bill Cash on one side and somebody like Caroline Noakes on the other. And I know many have already left. The Anasuris of this world have already left the Tory party over Brexit. Plenty of them are still in there. And these are a lot of these are natural Conservative voters who we now see beginning once again that, that migration towards the Greens or the Lib Dems and, in the case of Red Wall voters, potentially back to the Labour Party. And the Tories are running around going, well, Brexit was supposed to solve all of this. We thought that this was the magic, the silver bullet. It was supposed to be fantastic. Never actually getting to grips with the reason why people voted for it. 
there was an understanding, a recognition that the people who are currently in charge should not have been in charge. They are not doing their jobs as people want them to be done. And it's a very difficult conversation in the Tory party because it means addressing some slightly difficult questions around things like immigration that they don't want to say out loud, but they are going to have to. Otherwise, it's long-term electoral oblivion. There's been this conflation, I guess, a bit when we talk about right-wing conservatism of kind of... There's obviously the socially conservative element, which we saw quite a lot of at NatCon, maybe views on kind of marriage or LGBT issues or immigration. And then there's also the kind of small statist conservatives who have also been called right wing. But sometimes there are members who hold conflicting views on these things. I'm thinking, for example, like Steve Baker, who is very small statist. He would describe himself as economically liberal, but he has quite progressive views on LGBT issues and Black Lives Matter and things like that. Is there some kind of defining issue that we can say is right-wing conservatism? Or are we at the minute just using it as an all-encompassing term for varying views in the Conservative Party? I think it is in danger of becoming an all-encompassing view and often a sort of term of abuse. I would say there's probably two spectrums broadly. There's lots of different pressure groups and think tanks and individuals who represent different parts of the centre-right. But I would say there's broadly two spectrums. The one is on economic grounds and the sort of role of the state. And you go from the kind of libertarians, and Liz Truss obviously had her day, or a few days. And then you've got the more kind of statist, interventionist, Theresa May, the the good that government can do. And then the other spectrum, I think, is on more cultural issues. And you have the more kind of communitarians who are concerned about the social fabric, about the traditional family. Danny Kruger is probably in there. I would also perhaps put Rishi Sunak in that Mm -hmm. as well. And then you've got the more kind of culturally permissive liberal, which Cameron represented, pro-gay rights, pro-diversity, that sort of agenda. And they're the two spectrums to which different people are sitting. My own view of Rishi is that he's got the kind of vibe of somebody who's a bit like Cameron, quite liberal, young, modern, but actually is definitely more right wing, certainly culturally, and I would say economically, instinctively, even though at the moment the the size of the, the state in terms of the amount of debt we have and the taxation burden is quite high. His instinct, I think, is much more right-wing economically. And it is quite ironic, really, because all of these, the, the Conservative Democratic organisation that did that conference, who have really big Boris cheerleaders, and a lot of them are on the right. Well, Boris is one of the most left-wing Tory prime ministers we've had in a long time. Very fiscally expansionist, very permissive about immigration, hence why we've got quite high numbers at the moment. Very pro on the environment. Rishi is much more right-wing, but a lot of these people seem to think that he's a sort of establishment Europhile, which shows the sort of confusion that there is. But I think Benedict is right, which is all because things are not going well, we're getting more divisiveness on the right. And a lot of centrist Tories who worry about speaking out uh, and are less vocal, they're less provocative. That's just how they think in terms of policy, but their style as well. And for a long time, they've been in government and really they've had the prime minister that they want, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson to a certain extent. Whereas I think the jury's still out on Rishi, like the vibe is one of kind of liberalism, but the actual substance, I think, is much more culturally conservative. And I think a lot of centrist conservatives just see what happened in 2022, the amount of division, the impact that had on the party's reputation, and don't want to stoke the fire even more. So just they just think it can't go as low as it is now. So what's the point in going all 
guns blazing for Rishi on some things which they're uncomfortable about. For example, the asylum reforms, uh, threats to come out of the European Convention. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when we talk about the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, people always say, well, Sunak had to keep her in to appease the right of his party. In some ways, he is the right of his party. So is there an even more kind of right part of the party than Sunak? Or what is the group there? Benedict, maybe you can answer that. There are certainly elements to the right of Rishi Sunak. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. I think that we very often paint people like Suella Braverman and before Priti Patel as these almost sort of demonic figures, or they certainly are painted by certain people on the left, and they're very easy to do that, and that's why they're in those positions that act as human flak jackets for the Prime Minister, especially one who wants to sort of position himself as somebody who is fairly centrist, but is also quite right-wing. It's very helpful to have that little puppet slightly further in that direction. As to whether or not you can get even further to the right, yeah, that's absolutely possible. And again, I think you're beginning to see shoots of it at conferences like the National Conservatism Conference. Now, a lot of people will clutch their pearls and go, oh, the far right is on the march again. And it's not really about that at all. It is a sort of an importation of a lot of, I'd say, very American and also Israeli values, right-wing values, things like pro-natal policies, things like the nuclear family. The the expression ethno-nationalism, you hear it a lot more nowadays in sort of conjunction with immigration. And it's not a nice thing to think about. But that is so. They like to they like to compare countries like the UK to countries like Japan or Italy, for example, and say, "What are those countries doing well that we aren't doing here?" And they go, "Ah, well, that's because you've got this sort of homogenous community and everybody pulls together and they all work." And that's certainly growing. I wouldn't say that it's a major factor at the moment, but amongst what interests me is younger people. A lot of younger people are certainly taking these positions that you just don't imagine. You'd think that would be the preserve of the greying older voters so that they got more bitter and right wing. But actually, no, that's coming a lot more. You see it a lot more online. I don't think that's going to be on the agenda anytime soon. I also think that the party is large enough and muddled enough to drown a lot of that out. But make no mistake, that sort of that intolerance towards immigration, I think, is certainly growing. And a lot of that comes because the government hasn't been honest, actually, about what immigration is, why it is necessary. It hasn't really been very honest about its plans if we are to stop it or reduce it and what would replace it. So it's you in those sort of the vacuum of clarity, you will get people who are I wouldn't like to say extremists. I'd say very deep into sort of very theoretical realms of what the world is like. People, it's one of the things that you might spot about the National Conservative Conference. A lot of very intelligent people who I don't think get out very much, don't speak to ordinary people. They have these sort of grand visions of what the world is like, and it's very different. It's a nice theory, but it is very different from reality. And that is what the party just needs to... The disinfectant of light and honesty about what your plans are to deal with the issues and... At the moment, we don't really have that. We've got Rishi Sunak saying, oh, yes, immigration is too high. The 2019 manifesto said, we're going to bring it down. But I'm not going to bring it down to those kind of levels. I'm going to bring it down to the levels that I inherited. So half a million rather than 600,000. Then I can turn around and say, I'm bringing down immigration. And a lot of people will turn around and go, well, we can see what you're doing. You're not being honest with us. You don't have a long-term solution to labor shortages in this country. Can you give us that? And I think, as you say, you're right. There's a sort of a lack of bravery, if you like, from the centrist to say, no, this is our plan. This is what we believe. This is how we plan to get out of this. There's a lot of hand-wringing and trying to put out fires, some of which aren't particularly big and don't need to be put out just yet. Just agree and disagree in (laughs) centrist dad fashion with what Benedict is saying. On immigration, I certainly think on the right, there is a lot of anxiety about a lack of grip, saying one thing and then the opposite completely happening. I think more widely, my understanding of public attitudes on immigration is that it's become 
a lot softer towards immigration since the Brexit vote. Whether the vote for the referendum, there was a sort of sense we have more control now, whereas we had free movement before, I don't know. But generally, public attitudes towards immigration have become softer. That might be turning a little bit with what's happening in terms of the small boat arrivals. But I would say this goes to a wider point about young people, which is the sort of theory of some kind of national conservatives or communitarians was Brexit was a big turning point, a sort of post-liberal moment where lots of people were getting really frustrated with liberal attitudes. Again, all the evidence I've seen is that all generations, particularly younger generations, progressively are becoming more socially liberal mm. on things like relationships, on race, on marriage, also on immigration. So the danger for the Conservative Party is that, and we've seen this in terms of the data on younger people, millennials in particular, are not turning to the right, are not going towards the Conservatives in the UK or the Republicans in the US as they get older. I think that's for two reasons, one of which is economic circumstances. It's just really difficult to buy a house, mm. to start a family. So National Conservatives have a bit of a point, actually, mm. in terms of the birth rate coming down. Yeah. And there's some material mm. circumstances. But the crucial point is, I think, culturally as well, I think there's a sort of mismatch between younger people's values and what they see from some centre-right parties mm. who think liberalism has gone too far. And I d again, I don't think that's just a kind of young person thing. I think most generations have become more socially liberal. And the danger for the Conservative Party is it starts to become reactionary to mainstream values, mainstream public opinion, rather than rooted in mainstream public opinion, which is what conservatism should be about. Yeah, I think we need to be conscious, I think, the Tory party in the long term, of just how much young people are turning away from centre-right ideas. And again, I think it's a material thing, but also culturally in the sense that you know, a lot of millennials now, particularly women, nearly half of the cohort went to university. And there's a big correlation between going to university and holding more socially liberal attitudes. So I think this is a real long-term problem for the Conservative Party and the right in America. It seems to be quite an Anglosphere phenomenon. This, I think it's true that the younger generations are tending towards the left, but that is because they're being locked out of the processes that turn their older generations rightwards. If they can't own homes, if they can't have children, they don't have a stake in society, then that's going to happen almost by default. So actually it is within... It's in the Tories' best interest, especially this is the thing that we are talking about a lot, and it's what I think has crystallised the issue of immigration. I don't think that would be anywhere near as big an issue if we had enough houses and we were building infrastructure, if we were building nuclear power plants, reservoirs, all that sort of thing. If people couldn't see the physical manifestations of the shortages, then I don't think it would be so much of an issue. Uh, you can turn those people further to the right. I'm not saying that they're all going to become very right-wing, but you can put, turn them centre-right if you give them the reasons to do so. I think it's a little bit defeatist, and I think a lot of people on the right of the party would agree with this. It's defeatist to just say, oh, well, the future generations will all be socially liberal because that's the direction that things are trending in. That doesn't necessarily bear out in every country around the world. It certainly bears out in the Anglosphere right now, but the Anglosphere is not the rest of the world. In China, it certainly isn't the case that they're turning ever more leftwards. If anything, it's going in the opposite direction. So that is why I think, again, there needs to be more bravery around centrists about saying, OK, right now we might be a little upset about things like stop and search or things like immigration or upsetting voters who don't want new houses built near them. Maybe what is needed is a sort of a more muscular conservatism where you say, right, well, you might not like it, but that's what we need, that's what your children need, and that's what your grandchildren need, so that's what we're going to do. And it might mean that they take a bit of a battering at the ballot box. Well, that's going to happen anyway at the next general election. So what is stopping them from doing that? You don't need to let yourself be torn 
each way and the other between Remainers and Brexiteers and quite right-wing people and people who were effectively Lib Dems. That doesn't need to be the case. It requires a reassertion. And I just think that right now that doesn't exist. I would say socially liberal values are often painted as radical intersectionalism or <laughs> communal thinking and in pitting groups against one another and this kind of big wokery. I, I think actually the socially liberal position of treating people as individuals rather than as members of groups, I think is different to that kind of radical left agenda and conservatives need to be aware of that. Uh, just on the point that Benedict's making around building more houses, increasing home ownership, allowing people to start families, which a lot of people desperately want to do, but don't feel they have the financial security to do so. I agree with all of that. But even with that, there seems to be lots of affluent millennials are also turning in great numbers away from the Conservative Party and the centre-right in the Anglosphere. So I think there is a cultural thing. It's not just a material thing. How much of that turning away do you think is to do with what's happened over the last year, the sort of divisions and the various scandals and just the kind of things that have plagued the Conservative Party for, during the last year? So obviously we're seeing young people say, I can't afford housing. The Tories have taken that away from me, so I'm not going to vote for them. But those who have got all that but are still turning away, why are they turning away? Is it the infighting? Is it this marked shift to the left, to the right in terms of rhetoric? Or is it something different? Well, I, the evidence is quite clear that private incomes and public services have either stagnated or dropped in recent years. So there's little wonder that it's unsurprising why people are frustrated with the Conservatives. And go back to Benedict's point around competence being the main thing. I agree with that. And obviously in 2022, there was not a lot of competence with Partygate and then the mini budget. So that's obviously worsened perceptions to towards the Conservative government. But I think also people are in a place where no longer are they saying, what's the Conservative government going to do for me? Now it's in power, looking forward. There's almost a kind of looking back where they say, well, they've been in power for 13 years. What have they achieved? And frankly, there has been some progress, I think, on education reform, particularly on reading, thanks to some phonics push from Nick Gibb. I would say free schools, academies, expansion of university places, been some progress on employment policy and environment policy. But overall, the big things in terms of tax levels, debt levels, economic growth, we've stagnated or gone backwards. And that's the facts. So that's why I think people are turning away from the Conservative government. That's the sort of bottom line. For younger people, I think we've seen this shift away from the centre-right for some time. It's obviously been worsened by recent events. And again, I think that's down to the kind of material and cultural circumstances. After the break, we'll discuss what the Conservative Party might look like at the next election and beyond. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, 
and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We've seen quite a lot of Conservative MPs announced that they plan to step down at the next election. I wondered if either of you had a kind of reflection on that. Is that a reaction to this kind of shift in the party's popularity or this kind of shift in some of its policies? Or is it just an inevitability of 13 years in power and people wanting to spend some time with their families? Um, Go on, Benedict. I think... Yeah, I don't think it's in the numbers that would make me think, good Lord, this is quite the exodus. I think they are the majority in government. You you get some people who have been doing it for a long time. Some people like Deanna Davison, who's only been in for one term, might be thinking, actually, that I've, I've served a term. I've had this experience. It's not what's for me. Equally, people like Sajid Javid who might just be thinking, well, I'm never going to be prime minister, so I might as well go and make some money. I don't want to sit in opposition. So, yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think it yet represents... The great Tory brain drain, not that I would necessarily say that there were too many brains to be drained. And ultimately, there are a few, not many, but a few that I look at and I think, well, good riddance, frankly. It's, there are far too many hangers-on, actually, on the backbenches and in government who are not very good. And all of this, I'm afraid, has to go back to how it is that CCHU runs itself and selects its candidates. Too many, too much greasy pole climbing, all that sort of thing. Too many just shouldn't be there in the first place. And really, what we're discussing here, the sort of the conversations that are being had, these different conferences, is about the future of the party. If actually you're just there to be an MP because it's respectable and you know, all of that, you have no place actually in what is coming because it's going to be very painful. And I don't think the party has the time or the space for hangers on at this moment. Yeah, it feels that we're towards the end of the kind of Tory period. And that makes sense why some people foresee that and are leaving. It does feel that there's quite a lot of the sort of average age in which people are leaving is a lot, particularly on the Tory side, a lot younger Mm -hmm. than what was previously. Benedict's talked about how CHQ do selection. I think there's a wider point about the attraction of politics for talented people. And I do worry about this because obviously it's very important, public life and the impact that it makes. But I think a lot of younger people, frankly, the pay, the conditions, the intrusion in your personal life... And just the slowness of change as well. It feels a lot of people looking business, entrepreneurialism, but making more of a difference and an impact. And I do, I haven't got a study which accurately analyses the quality of MPs, but it does feel to me that talented people are looking elsewhere. And I worry about that. There are some very talented people like Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, I think are genuinely quite top of class, very cognitively able. They come from very affluent backgrounds. They either were born into that or made huge amounts of money, which gives them a financial security. And I do worry, going back to what we were saying, people in their 20s and 30s, it takes them much longer to get financial security. So a lot of them will just be put off from going into politics. In fact, actually, if I could predict something, the trend would be that you know, either fewer quality people are going into politics or they come in much later. Maybe that's not a bad thing, actually, that they come in when they've made a bit of money and got more security in their 50s. But I would, I'm seeing that a bit in the US, right, in terms of the age in which people are becoming president. And also, to some extent, apart from Rishi, but Starmer obviously had quite a long and successful career before he came into politics. And actually, that might be a good thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because people complain when they look at these sort of career politicians and they say you've got no life experience. But then also, if you have people who've worked a long career and then come in much later, people will say, oh, everyone's so old in Parliament. There's no one speaking for the young people. Or we've got a 
class of lawyers or te- whatever. So it's a kind of slightly difficult balance. And I guess really it's somewhere between the two. You want a kind of happy medium. Yeah, I mean, everyone's going to complain all the time about we all, we, all love, well, we all love youthful exuberance. But if I've just sat here and said there's a lack of sort of track record of being able to get jobs done in politics. Well, I couldn't look at somebody who's had a career of 10 years doing something and then go, oh, this person's too grey. That simply, I don't think, would work. And ultimately, I think people tend towards experience rather than youthful enthusiasm because as much as you need that vitality, that brings mistakes, it brings quips and moments of going viral on social media where you say something very silly in the pub. But that's always a threat, I think. And also, just to touch very quickly on it's not a very nice job, The culture around Westminster itself, I think, just isn't very nice. Mm. The way that people do business, the sort of the opaqueness of it, and then actually how people treat each other within Westminster. I just think it's a place that a lot of people, especially if they've done work experience, fair enough if you're somebody who's come up as a sort of a staffer and you think, yeah, this is the job for me. Okay, if you've got the wherewithal to do that, fine. I think a lot of people would have that experience and then go, no, actually, Mm. this just doesn't seem like a very good route in life for my own mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I know we've spoken a bit about housing as a kind of serious policy area that I think if the Liberal Conservatives need to consider and back and put front and centre if they want to keep maintaining support. I wonder what other kind of policies, and maybe it's good to start with you, Ryan, because obviously you do a lot of kind of policy thinking in your job. What other kind of stuff do you want to see maybe in the next Conservative manifesto that you think would help broaden your voter base? Well, I think they need to focus on how you boost living standards, so private incomes, and how you improve public services. They are, I think, the pain points for the majority of people. And I, because there's not much to say positively about the economy, I've found that there's some kind of leaning in on cultural issues and, and stuff around immigration, which I just don't think will win people over. On housing, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an issue with undersupply, particularly in desirable parts of the country. And we need to build more houses. We build less compared to other countries. There's a whole mixture of reasons for that. But the lack of consistency in the planning system from local authority to local authority, I think, is a major reason for that. There's also demand side issues around it as well. Frankly, for first time buyers, it's just become much harder to get a mortgage because of the stress tests that have been put in since the financial crisis. So there needs to be a tilting in terms of taxation and products, mortgage products, towards first-time buyers and bias towards them. Mm. If you look at buy-to-let investment, for example, baby boomers, I think now one in six of them own a second home. And part of that, I think, is just of them being able to take advantage of low interest rates to borrow even more on a second home. And that's they've managed to swoop in and get homes which traditionally would have gone to first-time buyers. They have instead bought them and rented those out to those people who would have been first-time buyers. So I definitely think housing is one of the big things for younger people in particular. And there needs to be much more radical ideas, particularly around taxation, but also the mortgage market in that area. I think the other area definitely where there needs to be a lot more focus is around supporting families and helping people in their 30s in particular with the costs of raising a child, whether that's to do with childcare or it's to do with that first year, the maternity leave. Maternity or paternity leave in this country is like 150 quid a week statutory amount. That is not enough for most people. Now, if you're working at Deloitte or KPMG, you have access to a nice occupational maternity leave where you paid six months Mm -hmm. of full pay. Most people in this country work in small businesses and that small business is only giving you statutory maternity pay. And the impact, particularly on women, not exclusively, but particularly on women of 
looking after children in those early days is really substantial. And of course, a lot of women now went to university, quite rightly, very ambitious about their career. And the impact of having children is very clear in the statistics. So I think there needs to be a lot more focus on helping families, housing, childcare. That, I think, needs to be the real focus of the Conservatives now. Those are the two that I would lead with. The country... Tories need to be pro-natal because when you know you will, I think you will nip a lot of the issues around um, complaints around immigration in the bud if you are making it easier for people who are competing to get on the housing ladder, competing to have children. If you make it easier for them to have those houses and have those children. Also, though, we're thinking long term here because you know, realistically, the next general election is gone. They're probably not going to come back for another ten years. Long term, with an aging population, you need to have more children. You cannot simply rely on importing people from other countries because that is a market as well. And we are not currently in the best situation to compete internationally to bring the brightest and best from the third world. And it's also not fair on developing nations to just strip mine them of their brightest and best talents. The other thing, though, it does relate to housing, and that is that I think planning laws in general need to be liberalised to a degree because it applies to things like agriculture and also to things like energy. And I think we've seen over the last 12 months, 18 months, the importance of having a lot more independence and self-sufficiency when it comes to producing energy. I think we need to recognise that rush to net zero nobly but slightly too fast. We can't pick up the shortfall. We need to invest in nuclear power plants to pick up that shortfall. And that will take 10 years, which is why we should have been doing it 10 years ago, but no time like the present. And things like the fact that this country experiences drought every year because we don't build enough reservoirs. That's unforgivable for a country that has the rainfall that we have. And in a changing world, it's no longer unipolar, much more multipolar. We don't know who our friends are going to be. We don't know who the ascendant powers are going to be, although we can guess and whether or not they are friendly towards us. The country needs to be more resilient, actually. And a lot of the unhappiness that you're seeing is as a result of things that are beyond the scope of the government to control. It can't decide whether or not Ukraine is invaded or Taiwan is invaded. But what you can do is reinforce the system so that when those things do happen, people aren't priced out of markets for things. They don't see all of their pay packets evaporating into inflation. So long term, I think the government has got to say, we're looking out for you long term, not just what you want this general election. We have a strategy. So I think would bring a lot more confidence to voters, having now just experienced these sort of once-in-a-generation event, that when the next one comes along, and it might be sooner than people realise, there will be a plan in place to make it less hard than it was this time. Mm. Just a final thing I would add as well, thinking about the kind of economic potential of the country and long-term prosperity. At the end of the day, what you need is to really incentivize talented young people who are going to start up businesses and work hard and build things. And we need to be an attractive place for those people. I personally think for economic reasons, but also fairness reasons, we can change the tax system much more radically to reward work, to lower taxation on employment, whether that's on the employee side or the employer side, and raise it much more on income that derives from assets, whether that's dividends or rent or even pensions. And there's an intergenerational aspect to that as well. So I don't buy this argument, which is being given by the government at the moment, which is either you cut taxes or you control infla inflation. I think that you can r drastically reduce taxation on younger people and employment on those people working hard, becoming entrepreneurs, by funding those tax cuts, they're not unfunded tax cuts, they're funded tax cuts, by raising in income tax and national insurance on some of the things that I mentioned, like pensions, rent and dividends. I think there's a way of doing that. So it's broadly fiscally neutral, but changes the incentives a lot more. Very interesting. Thank you. Final question, very quick. Any predictions for who might be the next Conservative leader? 
Oh, and if you don't have a name, do you think they will be more on the kind of central ground or on the right? When are we talking in the coming eight? I know there's lots of turnover at the moment. (laughs) I think Kemi Badenoch is probably the safest money. I don't think she's necessarily going to be leader, but if you were to look at the milieu of options that you have, I'd say probably that's the one I'd go for. She carries the least amount of baggage and the right amount of potential without not without being dangerous enough to creep up unannounced on the outside. That's the one that I would say is most likely at this moment in time. Yeah, I, I think Rishi, I definitely think, will go on till to the election. Mm-hmm. The polling seems to suggest that they will lose and he'll step down. In that case, I think Kemi Badenoch, Suella will put their hat in the ring. I think Kemi is an interesting appeal to different parts of the party that sympathise with what Benedict is saying. I think there are some younger people coming through that that you need to watch out for as well. So there's people like Victoria Atkins, Lucy Fraser, Chris Philp. I think a lot of those people will probably try and put themselves forward. But, of course, it helps if you've been in Cabinet and have that sort of high-profile status. So, yes, I think Kemi feels the sort of... Uh, and Tom Tugendat, possibly, because he, he represents more the sort of centrist wing. But I think Kemi is probably well-positioned in terms of the different wings of the party. And Michael Gove is very much behind Kemi as well. I was going to say it's all academic because Michael Gove will probably be in charge no matter who is actually leading the party. (laughs) It's always Gove in the end, isn't it? Thank you very much, guys, for coming on and joining us. It was a really good discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Zoe Grunewald. The team will be back on Thursday. You can watch a video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening. 